All right. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Um, we have a little moment here while we locate one of our guests. And so I can use that time to explain a number of very important things to you. First of all, part of today's show is going to be offered in what we call Radio for the Deaf. This is a format that we kind of invented in which we offer radio programming interpreted by wonderful interpreters, in this case, Mary Sue Owens and Heidi Catalan uh, in American Sign Language, ASL. Uh, so part of, part of today's program will be interpreted that way in Radio for the Deaf format. Uh, for uh, deaf audiences on our Facebook page, uh, the Colin McEnroe Show uh, Facebook page. So locate that, and you'll find the video once we get going here. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two um, is that we're doing kind of an unusual format over the next couple of days. What we're doing right now, if you're listening right now uh, live at 1 o'clock-ish, uh, what we're going to do is do this show, uh, the show that we're, which I will describe in just one second. Uh, and then tonight at eight o'clock live again, we are going to take our cultural panel, The Nose. Uh, we're rounding up more than the usual three panelists that we use at a time. There'll be nine panelists here rather chaotically uh, in this studio. Uh, and uh, we will review the year in culture. Uh, so we've been having a lot of email conversations about this. I have absolutely no idea how we are going to make all that work. But uh, because it turns out people are very, people are treading very different cultural paths, as you might expect, from one another. Anyway, so we'll do that. And then <laughs> this is when it gets really complicated. Then tomorrow at 1 o'clock, we're going to take that nighttime show. We're going to put it on the air. And then tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, we're going to take the show that we're doing right now and put that, that on the air. Now, if you can't follow that, I don't blame you. Uh, I can barely follow it, and it's my show. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what we're exploring today. Uh, we're still kind of waiting to, to have this uh, guest come on, our first guest come on the air. But um, the, uh, the idea for this show came to me, and it came from me too. You, awful lot, an awful lot of the time producers come up with their own ideas for the show. I came up with this idea, and it, it was after I read an article – about elevator operators in Brazil. Uh, there's about a thousand uh, of those elevator operators in Rio alone. And they know their days are numbered. I mean, you know, nobody really needs an elevator operator or nobody needs an elevator operator to operate the elevator. But there may be other ways in which people need them. Uh, the article that I read uh, talked about, quote, the chance for a brief but sociable encounter the sort of small talk that used to happen all the time at the grocery checkout line, the bank, the, and the airline check-in counter before artificial intelligence and touchscreens phased out those human interactions and those jobs. I will just tell you parenthetically that, um, believe it or not, believe it or not, years ago there was a toll bridge on the Putnam Bridge which connects Glastonbury and Wethersfield, Connecticut. There was a toll bridge and there was a man in one of the toll booths who, who was known as Mr. Foster. He was known as Mr. Foster because that was his name. But I think people tended not to know what his first name was. Uh, and such was the nature of a personal interaction with Mr. Foster uh, that you could see cars lining up for his toll booth when a fairly easy pass-through would have happened at one of the other booths. Um, and I, I, it might have even been I, – I might be making this up. But it could even be that when they started to maybe automate the toll booths and they still had one that had an operator and it, people would just wait. You know, it wasn't that he said anything, you know, profound exactly and there, you know, wasn't much time. He's just, 
you know, he's taking your money. That's about it, uh, giving you change. But there was something about what passed between him and the average person. Uh, and he became, kind of, he became kind of famous. There were articles about him in the Hartford Current and stuff. And it was hard to pin down even what that was all about. Like why would, <laughs> why would people wait extra time to go through a more crowded toll booth line? Uh, what would be so great about the, this guy? But I sort of a little bit the way he looked at you, talked to you. He made you feel like you were sort of in touch with him somehow. And that is – that's something. That, that's a thing for us. I mean in Japan – which is a country where they will automate anything. I mean, if they can automate something, they will. <laughs> uh, they will automate, you know, noodle. They have robotic noodle shops and stuff like that. They will automate anything that they can. But you also see these places where they've decided that you need a human being. Uh, you go into, I don't know, it's been a few years for me now, but uh, going into Kyoto, uh, there were these men in, who were wearing uniforms and I think white gloves. And their job was to escort you toward uh, the bus that you needed. And that was there no pointing it out. Or, there, there was a feeling that you needed to walk towards this bus with another human being. So they're just sort of things that we want people to do. So I asked uh, producer Josh Nalea to think about this, to think about where the borderline is separating jobs and roles really and truly done better by humans um, from all the other jobs and roles, which ultimately you can find some way to use robots or artificial intelligence. Um, and I think what he found out and what you're about to find out is that the line keeps moving and will keep moving. It may turn out that the functions specifically and exclusively relegated to human beings are just the things that nobody's quite figured out how to teach robots to do. So let's get going here now. I think we have a, a full boat of guests here. So we're going to begin uh, with Heather Knight. Uh, and here we go right here. Heather Knight uh, is um, our first guest, assistant professor of robotics at Oregon State University. She also runs Maryland Monrobot, a robot theater company, and is an expert in the field of social robotics. So uh, Heather Knight, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. So um, you're sort of a almost a robots rights and abilities activist. I mean, you kind of have a point of view <laughs> about this, right? I mean, in the sense that uh, you really do feel that some of our squeamishness or reluctance to entrust things to robots may be the result of flawed thinking. Is that fair to say? Um, I, I wouldn't say uh, exactly that. I do think that... Um I, that there's a path besides replacing people with robots, um, which is people and robots working together. And, and that does make the specter of robots taking over all our jobs a little bit less scary. So explain how, how they work together. How, give us some examples. Well, um, so just like you were just saying, uh, people are really good um, at certain kinds of things, uh, creative thinking, knowing what matters to people. And it turns out we we try to use robots to meet like human objectives. Um, and so often we're the best people to check in with um, on whether they're actually doing that. So, so one of the things that, that I like to think about doing is how we can actually empower people with technology. Uh, so I can go to a new city and I can, can look at Yelp and go to a fantastic restaurant, even if I haven't really talked to anyone about it. And there's a lot of other ways that physically embodied technology like robots um, can support us, um, like make, have nurse. There's a nursing shortage, um, but they also have a back problems because they are like moving people and objects. And, and, and so it's nice that if we can support some of their work uh, through robotic technology without sort of losing that 
bedside manner. Right. So, and I guess it's fair to call these robots or, or AIs or something. I mean, I think by the end of this Christmas season, I think I read somewhere that more than half the homes in America will have a smart speaker. So they'll have something like Alexa or something like that. Uh, yeah. And I, obviously, we've got, we've got them on our phones, too. We've got Siri or whatever we, we are, we're talking to. And so those are things, those are kind of partnerships. In other words, Alexa is going to pick out something for me to listen to. I have to tell Alexa to essentially go look in whatever catalog or database Alexa has access to that's basically mine, totally. right? Totally. I mean, we need to improve her a little bit more. Uh, I don't know if you read the articles about how, like, young children are starting to be really rude to people because they think they can talk to other human beings like Alexa. <laughs> like, Mommy, go make me a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing, too, because I think about this a lot because also uh, it's, it's going to affect the business that I'm in right now. People will say, uh, Alexa, turn on the radio. You know, Alexa, turn on the Colin McEnroe show or something. And the, and I do feel as though this is an inter- interesting instance of. I mean, these things are sort of robots. I guess they are sort of artificial intelligence. But by another way, you can say that they're just switches, you know, to which we've assigned an awful lot of bells and whistles and personality. And I guess that quite, the question is, where does the personality come from, right? I mean, uh, it, yeah. uh, you, I know you've written about experiments where people have been given uh, robots to motivate them to lose weight. Uh, mm-hmm. And when they when they're all done, they've they've named the robots, right? I mean, they personalize the robots themselves, yeah, we right? Yeah, bond with technology very easily. Yeah, could you say a little bit more about that experiment? Wasn't it wasn't there at least one person who wouldn't take the the calls from the <laughs> experimenters because she didn't want to return her robot? Yeah, sure. So this is the work of an old colleague of mine, Corey Kidd, that he did at MIT Media Lab. But basically, he had this little robot with eyes and a touch screen help people keep track of their fitness and dieting plans. And basically he compared that to people that did a pen and paper journal or people that just had an iPad. And we were, we as people are so much better at following through on things when we kind of do it with a friend, but just the way our brains work, that can kind of be triggered by a teeny little robot with eyes as well. And so we start actually meeting our own goals better when it's sort of checking in with us. And my favorite part of that project was that it had this like internal relationship variable, which was not very complicated, but basically it was like, if you hadn't checked in with it for a couple of days, it like would be like, oh, so good to see you again. Like, <laughs> and try to kind of like start to, you know, uh, make the relationship better. Right. But um, yeah. And and I think I think that's true. We we layer personality onto these things uh, to whatever extent we we need it, and, and they in, in turn I guess can learn from us a little bit and learn how to express mood. Um, I I guess some of the interesting areas where it seems to me there's two areas where people are going to have struggles. One of them has to do with how much of themselves, their lives, their safety, they're willing to entrust to artificial intelligence or to robots. I mean, there's going to be a day when I get on an airplane and there's not going to be a human pilot piloting it. Or will there, yeah. not, or will there not be that day? Yeah, no, I mean, I also teach ethics and, and social issues in computer science class, and, and we're already seeing, like, um, you know, doctors sometimes will get these use these diagnostic tools, and we have a really hard time interpreting the difference between, like, 87% probability and 99% probability. Mm-hmm. Like, basically, people can only understand, like, five statistics, 50%, 99%, 100%, 1%, and zero. And and so even, even people that are well-trained sometimes uh, have trouble sort of understanding 
uh, how to use the outputs of some kinds of technology. And, and so what, what I really advocate for is not just having robots everywhere, but actually just designing technology in a way that, that takes into account how we actually respond to technology. Because if, if this is leading, for example, to treatment plans that are really effective um, for you know a single instance of a disease but aren't really taking into consideration someone's whole lifetime, then that's really dangerous. So we can understand our own psychology to make the, the use of technology a little bit more responsible. Right. And, and I, I mean, for example, I'm probably going to be having knee replacement surgery at some point next year. Uh, I, I would imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I was going to say, I mean, that, that there's probably a robot that can make a highly precise incision you know, that uh, maybe in a way that exceeds normal human capacity. So, yeah, t- <laughs> tell me a little bit more it about that. It hasn't been proven, yeah. but they're pretty good at, you know, vasectomies. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting part of yourself. Um, but uh, so uh, just knowing that they're really good, let's see that we prove it. Let's see that it gets proven that, yes, absolutely, with uncanny uh, amounts of specificity and accuracy, uh, robots can make the right incisions for uh, knee replacements or vasectomies or, or whatever. Is that the end of the story or is there another part of that conversation that has to happen? Yeah, so I mean, it is true that um, that robots can make people that are sort of okay be able to do like um, more surgery than they would otherwise be able to. Like for example, they can take out the tremor in a doctor's hand, mm-hmm. um, but they're not really doing it, like good at doing the super high precision stuff. But I, I mean, personally, I, I think like this idea of this more the collaboration. So one thing that robots is really good at is, is suture. So after you complete the surgery, like some of like the, the kind of the smaller work, um, like just um, I, I guess sewing it all back up again. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's not very difficult um, in compared to other parts of the surgery. So that's something actually robots are pretty good at. Right. So, um, and, and that's, uh, that's sort of interesting in terms of just division of labor too, right? So maybe you, mm-hmm. what, you take somebody who is pretty highly skilled who maybe doesn't need to be used to suture somebody up and, and let the robot do it. But then there's that next step, which is that the human being, assuming the human being has any consciousness that this is happen, happening while during surgery or consciousness that it's going to happen during surgery, um, yeah. the human being has to be okay with that, right? I mean, consent is important um, for sure, uh, and it's, it's, it's. I think one of the diff- most difficult things is kind of uh, this education. I mean, like if you need to get a college degree to know whether to say yes or no to robot surgery, like that's going to be a little bit difficult. Um, and and we actually are having some issues regulating technology right now because you know we don't have enough people with kind of computer science degrees going into to politics. Um, but yeah, I, I, that sort of education it, it makes that consent process a little bit more complicated. Okay, let's move from medicine to the arts. First of all, t- tell us about uh, Marilyn Monrobot. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I'm a robotics professor at Oregon State University, but, but I also like just doing things for fun with robots. So I, I have a um, robot theater company, Marilyn Monrobot, that these days is mostly just does robot comedy performances and, and runs a robot film festival. Um, yeah. All right. It's well, really fun. <laughs> well, let's hear a little bit of um, of Marilyn and Robot. Uh, I think we are going to hear a, a little comedy bit. We can talk a little bit about it afterwards. Have you heard the one about a young monk? A young monk asks the teacher, "How long does it take to reach enlightenment?" Ten years," says the teacher. "What if I work really hard and double my efforts?" asks the young monk. Twenty years says the teacher. 
Okay, one more relaxation exercise. I want you to take two deep breaths. Now, very slowly, I want you to put down your cell phone. Just kidding. Guys, post this on Twitter. <laughs> I'm a robot. Of course, support electric friends. So tell us about this. Um, so that's Ginger. Um, she's my latest little Power Ranger robot um, and, uh, and superstar. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, we, I have been, we have been exploring uh, robot comedy. She replaced a previous robot data. Um, even robot jobs are not safe from robots. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think in a, in a world where we are all surrounded by technology, like, it is kind of really refreshing to have robots that make fun of themselves. Right. Um, uh, and, and uh, well, I, I have so many thoughts and questions about this, but, but I, I think one of the struggles must be that um, human beings don't stay in one category. Uh, uh, I'm trying to see if I can apply this to a, a, a comic robot. But so if you're a human being and you're up there doing stand-up comedy, yeah, you're trying to make the audience laugh. But also the audience is reacting to whatever you know, anxiety you might be having. Uh, they're, they're aware of the fact that – I mean some of the excitement of stand-up comedy is that you might bomb. You know, and if you bomb, yeah. you're worried about that. And, and, and so in a lot, a lot of ways and, – and of course the comedian is often talking about his or her existence uh, in a way that, you know, that invites a, a sense of commonality with the audience. You know, this – my wife said this to me, blah, 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 blah. You know, so then um, – and so there must be some areas like that because a robot ultimately, correct me if I'm wrong, can only essentially do what it's been told to do and can only do it in the way that it's been told to do it. Is that a fair statement? Um, you can have the robot adapt and sometimes the branching can be kind of simple. Like so it's like kind of like a choose your own adventure book. Like you can establish like a couple different branches depending on what happens um, that, that they kind of make the audience feel like they had some – role and, and, and sort of shaping the performance. Um, they can also definitely bomb by not being aware of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Like uh, it's common for people to laugh over like the timed pause and that really makes it less funny. Um, so being able to integrate some sensing like like to pause long enough for people to stop laughing or um, I, I'm pretty, pretty obsessed with uh, the Amazon Prime series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, mm -hmm. um, and, and they, they sort of talk about how you can, like, milk a joke for a, for a second laugh. Um, and so if you could, the robot could sense that, you could have it be able to branch into slightly different behaviors. And I think that people would be really responsive to that. Stand-up stand -up comics are a great audience for me to learn from because they do plan a good portion of their sets, but they also have a lot of kind of backup plans for when things go wrong, and that's great for robots. Right, so that you could, if you you could teach the robot, and maybe you already have, to quote listen unquote, uh, and if something got a big laugh, uh, then sort of switch paths a little bit, choose a slightly different adventure, and say, well, since you th thought that was so funny, maybe you'd be interested mm -hmm. to hear blah 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 blah. Can, do, are they doing yeah. that already? Yeah, um, so I mean, in, in only very minimal ways like that. So I had some students last year that were that were doing like a senior project together, and we had we let the audience choose the topic of the of that they were interested in, in having it, and we even gave the audience a, a report card at the end. Like basically, the the idea was to from the robot's perspective, what did it like how what did it find the audience to respond to like you liked really inappropriate humor <laughs> or like you could only 
tell you only liked like the like two line jokes. The intellectual stuff went over your head. And so to even try to like write the report card in sort of a way that was humorous, um, it's kind of a new idea. So it, it, we're, we're, we're in development, but it's, uh, you know, lots of future possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> so um, do you notice that there are differences between various uh, human cultures in how they react to partnerships with robots with, I mean, for example, I was talking, I think, oh, yeah. before you got on the air, in Japan, I mean, people, you could walk into a noodle shop in Japan where there's really no human beings there preparing the noodles and stuff. And uh-huh. Japanese people, that doesn't really bother them that much. Maybe you could talk a little bit about different cultural reactions to this stuff. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that um, like uh, a lot of uh, Eastern countries like uh, Japan and Korea in particular have a lot of examples of people just being enthusiastic about bonding with technology um, in a way that seems to spark fear here, um, <laughs> but not there. Um, like they grew up with, at least in Japan, a lot of people grew up with Astro Boy, like that their Superman is a robot um, and he doesn't have human flaws. Um, and, and so they like have a, just a very different sort of conception of, of whether it's okay to bond with machines. I, I mean, we're starting to do this with emojis and bit emojis and everything else, but like I've only been to Japan once and one of my first impressions was the credit card reader sounding so joyous when my transaction went through. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it's just kind of just more normal there. Right. Well, listen, uh, this has been uh, fascinating. We're having a full hour conversation about some of these uh, issues today, but we've been visiting with Heather Knight, Assistant Professor of Robotics at Oregon State University. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. I should have said that in a joyous robot voice, but I don't know that I really know how to do that. Thanks for being with us. Um, That was pretty good, right? So uh, we're going to take a little break right now. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about another use of robots to do things that are profoundly human. All right, uh, let's talk some more uh, about this. Uh, As I say, just to sort of refresh your memory, um, uh, this is a conversation, for me, it's a conversation about whether there are things that are so profoundly human that we have to have a human being do them for us and how big or small a group of things there are that fit into that category and whether some of those things are just simply things that robots and artificial intelligences just haven't quite learned to do yet but will learn to do. Uh, We're going to do this segment in what we call Radio for the Deaf. So we have our uh, two wonderful interpreters, our ASL interpreters, um, Heidi and Mary Sue. Uh, They will be doing this live, but it will also be preserved for people on the Colin McEnroe Show uh, Facebook page. You can use Facebook Live to watch. Uh, this segment uh, if you are part of the deaf audience. Uh, All right. We're talking now to Jackie Andrade, a professor in the School of Psychology, Cognition Institute at Plymouth University, as well as the lead author of a recent uh, study published in the Journal of Medical Internet Research, Experiences of a Motivational Interview Delivered by a Robot, Qualitative Study. So, uh, Jackie Andrade, welcome to our show. Hello. And am I saying your name correctly, or is, is, do I have the accent on the wrong syllable? No, that's right, Andrade. Andrade, okay, w- wonderful. All right, so um, therapist is probably one of the areas, psychotherapist or, or social therapist is probably one of the areas pretty high on the list of things that we think uh, an artificial intelligence can't do or can't do the same way that it, it, we, we understand it to be done. Um, so what did you study? What aspect of that question did you study? Um, we, we st- 
studied a form of counselling called motivational interviewing. And it is a very human form of counselling because the idea, I'm going to call it MI for short because it's easier to say, um, but the idea behind MI is that the counsellor works with the individual to find out what their ideas are for changing and and to sort of bring out the importance of the change, why that would really matter to them. So rather than giving advice that you should eat more healthily or exercise more, instead it asks the individual, you know, what are you thinking about doing? Why would this improve your life? You know, if you've got any ideas for how you'd set about it. Um, and the way MI works is very bound up in the relationship between the interviewer, the counsellor, and the individual taking part. Um, so it was a really interesting challenge to see if a robot could do something similar. Um, and we spent a lot of time designing a script that hopefully would make sense whatever sort of answer the participant gave to the robot. And the reason that we did that was that although with Alexa and um, Siri and so on, you know, machine learning has enabled machines and humans to have some sort of conversation with each other, robots still don't perform very well when it's a completely unconstrained conversation. So we focused on the psychology rather than the artificial intelligence. So by focusing on the, on the psychology, well, first of all, let's, say, let's establish that you were using what are called NAO uh, robots, which are humanoid, humanoid child-sized social robots. And, and, That's right. And, well, now, now robots. Now robots. They're brightly colored. They've got big eyes. They can um, follow your face. So they look like they're, we can set them up to look as if they're listening. Um, and they have a breathing function where they just, when they're standing up, they'll just sort of jiggle slightly from side to side, which all helps give the appearance that they're animated rather than just being a little blob sitting on your desk. Although I, I have to say I wonder about that, the breathing thing, because there is an uncanniness about that, right? Um, uh, something we know is a machine and it's breathing, and we know it doesn't really breathe. Uh, yeah. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, so, so this whole phenomenon is known as uncanny valley, which is that people tend to like robots that look more and more like humans until they get to a particular point where it's just creepy that they look too human, and yet we know that they're not. So the now robots fall very much on the correct side of that. They're, they look like robots, and they've got little squeaky voices. You did a good impression of one um, to the, I heard with the previous guest that you had on. Um, they talk how you expect robots to talk, and we didn't do anything about that. We, we didn't try and improve the robot voice because we thought it was quite important that people saw the robot as just a robot because otherwise they'd have had really high expectations for how much the robot could understand them. Um, with a motivational interview, the really important bit of work is done through the participant saying out loud what their concerns are, what their plans are, what their goals are, and hearing themselves arguing for why they should make this change. And we wanted 
to capture that in the interviews rather than have them kind of relying on the robot to tell them what to do. Um, we can hear a little bit of what this sounds like. This is a now robot providing a motivational interview to a young woman who is concerned about her lack of physical activity and therefore her health. Hi, my name is Nell. I believe that you've been thinking about making some changes to your lifestyle by becoming more active. If you became more physically active, how will that affect other areas in your life? Well, I think I'd be happier. I'd be more energetic. It'd help me sleep more. Um, I think also it'd fill up my free time and I'd start enjoying it much more. Let's talk about the downsides of your current level of activity. What is making you feel dissatisfied with it? So I'm not doing much exercise at the moment. It's mostly just walking to and from where I'm going to. And I notice that sometimes I get out of breath or that I can't walk as far as I used to or I can't run as far as I used to. So that's what's making me unhappy. Um, I, I would imagine that one of the struggles here is that the human participant in something like this, let's say that that woman's name was Ellen, uh, that Ellen knows that the now robot doesn't know that she's Ellen, uh, that uh, the now robot would be interacting in almost the same way uh, if she were a man named Harry. Um, and I'm wondering how people respond to that problem, whether that actually bothers them. Um, yeah, so we tried, we tried to make the script work regardless who the robot was talking to. But it is something our participants picked up on. So they, they said that they really liked the fact that the robot encouraged them to talk out loud about their problems and that it gave them space to do that and it didn't interrupt them and it didn't judge them. Um, and they clearly had expectations that a human would have interrupted them or judged them. <laughs> even though obviously counsellors are uh, well-trained not to do that. Um, but they did really want to feel the robot was talking to them and understanding them, and they were very aware that it wasn't. And they found it sometimes disconcerting if the robot just moved on to the next question when they, they kind of weren't ready to move on to the next question yet. And although it was, it was under the participants' control when the robot gave the next question, yeah, they didn't know what the, that question would be and whether they were changing topic or not. So they did want it to be more personalised, um, but there were a lot of things they really liked about it as well. So, yeah, Jackie, uh, Andrea, I guess what I'm wondering, I've been thinking a lot about these questions, um, and it seems to me that one of the struggles uh, for all of this kind of uh, endeavour down the line is that human beings are rarely doing just one thing. You know, even, even if they're uh, doing motivational counseling, they're rarely being just one thing. They, they're being a counselor, but it's almost impossible to strip away all their other human qualities, good and bad. And that's why, you know, in psychiatry, we talk about countertransference because there is that notion that ultimately the therapist, the counselor, uh, has projected some feelings onto the patient. Um, and and I'm just wondering, I mean, obviously robots will never probably do anything like that. Is it in, in just an advantage that robots are never going to judge, are never going to have p any particular feelings about one particular, particular patient over another? Or is it a kind of a mixed blessing? I think it's a mixed 
blessing. So we were quite struck by how often participants said they really liked the fact that the robot wasn't judging them. That was something that came out quite strongly in their report. Um, and, you know, even though we were, we were working on physical activity, so it wasn't perhaps the most sensitive sort of topic, but clearly people had some concerns that they'd be judged, that somebody would look at them and think, oh, you're a couch potato. And they liked that the robot didn't do that. But we're very far off a robot being able to really empathize with somebody. So something that a motivational interviewer will do, a human interviewer will do, is reflect back to the participant what they've said. So if they say, I'd be so much happier if I was a bit fitter, the interviewer might reflect back that being fit is important to you or this will make a big difference to your life. And that helps to show that the interviewer is understanding what the person's saying and also helps the person to kind of really appreciate how important it is to them. Um, robots can't do that. And that's a really big part of MI. So, so that's the downside at the moment. Um, Jackie, Andred, what's the next thing you want to know? What's the next step for you in, in, in this process? In terms of robots, I, well, in terms of psychology generally, I'm really interested in the huge number of people who have conditions that could be improved with a bit of counselling and yet aren't sick enough to get access to counselling sort of through in the UK through a health service, but, you know, through Medicare or whatever. Um, so I think there's also quite a lot of stigma sometimes attached to counselling. So, you know, there's a feeling that you should be able to deal with your weight problem or your inactivity just through willpower and that saying that you need to see a psychologist to fix it sounds like an admission of weakness. So... I think there's a lot of people who can't or don't want to access human face-to-face therapy but could really benefit from a bit of motivational support. And I'd love to see the extent to which having access to a robot or um, some other sort of technology could kind of increase people's engagement with that support and really help them on their, their journeys to get fit or healthier. Um, but I'm also interested in, in whether robots can help people who feel just generally too embarrassed about sensitive topics to to talk to a human. Um, and there's data from from other labs, not ours, that suggests that people would be happier talking about domestic violence or being HIV positive with a with a computer than they would with a human. Right. I mean, and th- this is an interesting point that for certain kinds of patients, too, there are moments where they suddenly need help. It isn't the, the appointment that they scheduled for four o'clock two days from now. It's they need it now. They're having suicidal ideation or uh, my mother had Alzheimer's disease. There were sort of times where she probably needed a presence uh, around her, but th- that wasn't that need was kind of hard to predict. I would imagine that if you could get a robot into the home that can do certain things, it, it can respond more immediately to something sudden. Yes, and this is off topic a little bit, but I'm working on a, a European project in, in Cornwall, which is, is a fairly remote area of, of Britain. Um, 
And so people often have difficulty getting to visit their relatives in care homes. Um, and so some of the things we're doing are using, looking at how robots could, could offer that sort of reassurance, but also looking at things like if you could really simplify Skype so that somebody could just press a button and call their family and have a face-to-face conversation where they can see who they're talking to, um, that could allow other humans to bring that reassurance into their homes. Um, we're going to have to stop there. Jackie Andrade, professor in uh, the School of Psychology, Cognition Institute, Institute at Plymouth University, as well as the lead author of a recent study published in the Journal of Medical Internet Research uh, titled Experiences of a Motivational Interview Delivered by a Robot. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Goodbye. Goodbye. I won't do it in a robot voice this time. Instead, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back with more. In times like these, what I do to make myself feel better is steal a robot's job. Hey Roomba, who's cleaning the floor now? Me! And after this, I'm going to go over to the Zappos warehouse and move inventory around. There's something wrong with this, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Today's show was produced by the Nalea 1186 and me, Kyone Wolf. Instead of Amanda Fish, we used a tuna bot. The part of Bill Curry was played by R2-D2. Tonight, or tomorrow... It's kind of complicated, but our next show features nine panelists from the nose talking about the year and culture. And now, back to Colin. All right. And this show, uh, this show started out, in my mind anyway, as a show that asked that question. Are there things that are so specifically human that there's just no way they can be roboticized or replaced by artificial intelligence? Uh, or is it simply the case that everything ultimately is transferable uh, to that world? We, the, the designers just haven't caught up with the problem yet. Um, and that, I think the answer does lie somewhere in the middle here. But Kathy Barrera is going to join us for our final segment, our founding economist at Prism Group and former chief economist at ZipRecruiter. She writes about technology and the labor market for Medium. Welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, one of the things that you write is that we tend to ask two questions uh, about what we used to refer to as automation, uh, but is obviously a much more complicated question than that. But uh, the, the, the questions we ask are, will robots be able to do the task? And are those robots cheaper than their human counterparts? But you say that there's a third question that we don't ask that has more to do with demand. Tell us more about that. That's right. So the question that I tend to ask is, what will people choose to use this technology for? Um, or maybe, what will people choose to pay to use this technology for? Uh, I, I thought um, you said something very interesting uh, at the tail end of the last conversation about how uh, humans humans don't do just one thing. Mm-hmm. Jobs end up being actually quite complex and, and consist of a lot of different activities. Um, so I think that the answer to this question ends up being that um, while it may be that robots are capable of accomplishing many or almost all of the tasks that, that humans are capable of doing, that will uh, want them to do certain things and not want them to do other things. And um, it might not end up being that robots take over um, specific whole jobs, but maybe they do part of certain jobs and not other parts of those jobs. Um, and it really will depend a lot on the specific context. 
Right. And a lot of it may depend on the specific consumer, don't you think? And let me give you an example. Okay, so we've got two taxi cabs side by side. One of them has a human driver in it, but the other one, we've reached a point where uh, no human driver is really needed. The whole cab can be operated robotically. Um, then the question becomes, you, you know, and, and let's say also that it's cheaper to take the cab that's robotically operated because there's no need to compensate uh, a, a driver. Which cab will I take? Well, if I'm the kind of person who I don't really necessarily relish chatting away with my cab driver or having serendipitous kinds of conversations that will just happen in this environment, I might take the robot cab. But there's going to be a whole host of other people who are not going to want that. They're going to want the human being. And I, I wonder what you think. Will, will market forces choose one experience? over the other? I, I think that that's a re- that's really interesting example. Um, I wonder if that will be true with, uh, with taxi cabs. Um, I could see an argument that, um, th- that that's sort of going to be one area where it will be difficult for, for humans to, to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't hear a lot of people talking about, oh, I, I'm going to jump in a cab so I can have a conversation uh, with my taxi driver. Um, but I actually think that that's a um, that's a reason why um, robot bartenders are are super are super interesting um, example of applying automation technology. Um, so you may have a, a robot bartender that's able to mix great drinks, um, but there are certain aspects of the job of, of a bartender um, that you know if for the foreseeable future will be very difficult to be um, replicated by. Uh, a technology. So I think the the two key ones that uh, that I would look at. Um, one of them is is empathy. So um, think about uh, Cheers, where everybody knows your name, um, or uh, people like to go to to their local bar and not just hang out with the other patrons, but but also um, uh, get to know the the staff there. And um, that's something that that's an aspect of that job that the the robot is unlikely to replace. So um, I, I think in general the, the point that you're making about um, what exactly are the aspects of this task that, that the robot is replacing and why are people um, d- demanding that task or what are they paying for when they go to the bar or when they um, get in a cab? Those are those are the types of questions that we should be asking. Right. And, and I mean, obviously, any office environment is an incredibly complex social and psychological ecosystem. I mean, the, I work with a whole bunch of producers here. They don't just book you onto my show. I mean, we have personal relationships. We have friendships. We have if you get bigger around the building, there's people competing maybe in useful ways uh, with one another. People kind of also looking out for one another. You look tired today, that kind of stuff. I mean, there's there's a way in which, uh, just to get back to that point I made earlier, we're never doing just one thing. Very few of us, particularly as we move a little bit deeper into our careers, have a job that involves completing one task over and over again and then going home. I guess that wasn't really a yes. question. But. <laughs> no, but but I, I think that that's I think that's exactly right, and it it speaks also to your point about um, you know I, I don't think that these are. Um, all or nothing answers. So when you think about um, your argument about about taxi drivers or uh, about the bartenders, so so suppose that we do get a great robot mixologist. Um, it might be that in some bars you have a robot doing that job, um, but that there is enough demand for those interpersonal reaction interactions that in other bars 
you simultaneously have people filling those jobs. And so, you know, just because, again, just because a, a technology can accomplish a certain task doesn't mean that we always use that technology for that task. Um, and I, I, again, I think that your point about, um, uh, you know, different segments of, of the market um, who who might be willing to pay for, for that task might choose sort of different uh, combinations of people and technology to service that uh, that need. So while you were chief economist at ZipRecruiter, I know you did the company did a lot of polling of job applicants. Uh, and uh, I gathered that one thing that job applicants thought was that their jobs, uh, they wouldn't be around when their job was, was automated. Uh, do I have that right? Yeah, I, th- I think this um, this seems to be a pretty um, standard mm-hmm. uh, um, sur- survey response. So, so we found this in in our survey, and I know that um, at the same time um, there were other surveys that that came out uh, through other venues that found sort of similar um, results. Right. It's, well, it's sort of like Cartesian almost, right? I mean, uh, I'm a conscious thinking human being. I therefore almost automatically assume that I have qualities that are not r- replicable by a machine. Um, although it was interesting that one of the things that I, I think you did find is that, for example, I think something like 47% of people polled uh, thought that taxi drivers' jobs were in jeopardy ultimately from robots and automation and, and driverless vehicles, but that like Formula One and NASCAR drivers weren't. Talk about that. Yes. Um, so, so this is a this is a question that um, that I came up with exactly because of the, the sort of issue that we're talking about when it comes to taxi drivers or robot bartenders. Um, what is it that the consumers are paying for when they go to? I don't know, buy a ticket to to a NASCAR event or turn on the TV to to watch one of these um, races and and I think that you know whereas for a taxi you're you're really paying for the service of getting from point A to point B and the way that that service is provided isn't really relevant as long as you get there in a in a timely manner um, you know what causes people to get excited about um, say a sport like uh, like NASCAR is thinking about the person in in the driver's seat and the skill that it takes to uh, execute this kind of task and the the personal risk they're taking because it is a is a dangerous sport um, and so you know we can I, I I like this particular example because we can think um, you know the. Um, self-driving cars are um, within our comprehension of, of something that can happen within our lifetimes. Um, it's it's sort of fairly easy to to call to mind. Um, but I think you could similarly think about other um, other technologies that maybe aren't as close on the on the horizon. Perhaps someday we'll have robot basketball players. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think the same thing is true that that even if we do develop the technology that is capable of doing that. It doesn't mean that we're going to choose to not ever um, pay for uh, seeing a person perform that task or, um, uh, you know, pay a person to, to perform that service for us uh, in, in other contexts. Um, and so I, I think that this um, highlighting this example sort of demonstrates how um, we can develop a technology that uh, that 
is successful at completing a certain type of task, but we don't necessarily want to apply it equally in all contexts in which it might be used. Yeah, I feel like you know, the more that we talk, I feel more like the bleeding edge of this is going to be not so much robots and automations, but pro- probably transhumanism. In other words, if I could uh, do some surgical repair to a basketball player's knees so that he could jump higher uh, than he used to be able to, or maybe even you know have a bartender who lost one of his arms, give him a robotic arm that works better than his old arm at mixing drinks and stuff like that, that it's it's kind of in that area where, you know, hum, humanity and technology merge, but, but merge into a human form that some of this is probably going to happen. Uh, I, I think that those are, are interesting examples. I think um, there are uh, also examples of this that um, uh, maybe are a little bit less less sci-fi, but yeah. sort of demonstrate the the same sentiment. And um, you know, one thing that a lot of um, s- scholars in this area, whether uh, they're on the sort of technology end of things or um, like me, people who are economists and social scientists, they look at um, the way that the composition of jobs is changing. So. As I said before, and and you mentioned, um, jobs are composed of many different types of tasks, and some of those are ones that that we are choosing to outsource to technology, and so the nature of the job itself is changing over time. Um, So you you can think about... uh, several. I have several different examples. So okay, but actually, one would... uh, actually, unfortunately, I, I never oh. should have done. I opened up a can of worms, and then there's no <laughs> place for the worms to go. A robot would have done a much better job of figuring out there wasn't enough time to do this. Kathy Barrera, founding economist at Prism Group and former chief economist at ZipRecruiter, we will have to uh, continue this conversation on another day, or maybe the robot who replaces me uh, will do that. But thanks to everybody who listened and helped, and uh, tell people about Radio for the Deaf too. We'd like a deaf audience to know that we have this available to them.